I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 2, Gospel according to Luke chapter 2. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 1090. Every year in the, uh, the weeks leading up to Christmas, Rebecca always tells me the same thing. Uh, First, she tells me how handsome I am and how blessed she is to be married to me. Uh, but she tells me that every day. Um, she, she's not here to defend herself. So, uh, No, but she, she, she always tells me, don't get me anything for Christmas. You know, she'll give me maybe one or two really small things. You know, we're talking less than $10. You know, here, if you got to do something to put in my stocking, do this so the kids don't think I was bad and Santa Claus didn't bring me anything or something like that. But, um, you know, here, you know, just a couple small things and that's it. And don't give me anything else. And so uh, I'm not terribly old. I'm fairly young, I would like to think. But I, I, I still am not 100% foolish. And so every year she tells me not to get her anything, but I still get her something. And we're not talking anything extravagant, but just something small, a little bit more than what she asked for. And uh, I don't know how y'all operate. Some people, you are just, you know, you have great self-control and you are able to buy a present for someone, wrap it, put it under the tree, and then not think about it until Christmas. But I am not that kind of person. I'm the kind of person where as soon as it comes in the mail and it's wrapped and it's under the tree, it absolutely drives me insane. I just want to give it to her. I want her to ask me questions about it. I want her to be thinking about what's in that box. And so all that to say, she's already gotten her Christmas present for this year. Um, I, I couldn't stand it and gave it to her uh, Friday night, I think it was. But I, I have this tactic every year where, you know, I don't want her to get her hopes up too high because honestly, what I normally get her for Christmas is never that great. Uh, it's usually something that I thought was a good idea and then sometimes I'm right and sometimes I'm not. But my tactic is I undersell and hopefully over-deliver. So I always try to push the expectations as far down as I can. <clears throat> and then if it's not that great, then I just, well, I told you it wasn't that great. But then if it is, if it is okay, then I exceeded my expectations. But I never try to just say, you know, just wait, you know, just wait, because this is going to blow your mind how awesome this is. So I always try to lower the expectations. And I, I just want to, I want us to do an exercise this morning, a rhetorical question, to think about the first chapter of Luke's account of the gospel, he's basically been sort of giving us a sense of what to expect uh, when it comes to the birth of Jesus. And he's done that by telling us about the, the angel Gabriel who came to visit Mary and the psalm that Mary sang in response to that when she went to visit Elizabeth. And he's told us even about uh, the announcement and the birth of, of John. And, and so the question, the rhetorical question is, has Luke been sort of lowering our expectations about Jesus' birth, or has he been elevating them? And uh, I will let you decide, but let me just read for you what Gabriel told Mary back in chapter 1. You've probably heard this before, but this was back in chapter 1. Gabriel said to Mary, he, that is the child that you're going to give birth to, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David... And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So he's, 
He's God's son. He is an eternal king who's going to reign forever. He's a savior who will fulfill God's promises and redeem God's people. In his visitation, God himself is going to dwell among his people. That's not what I would call lowering expectations. God, Luke has been building our expectations for this. And yet, I don't want you to allow the familiarity of this Christmas story to make you miss the irony of it. Because when we get to chapter 2, when we get to this big thing that it's been building up to, it's kind of a fizzle. It's kind of not all that special looking at first. And yet, there is something deeply ironic here that is going to help us see the wonder of what God has done in this birth. So let's read together in Luke chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pause there and we'll pray together. Lord, we we're thankful for your word and pray that, Lord, as familiar as this particular story is to us, that you would awaken our hearts and minds this morning to the wonder of it as if we are hearing it for the very first time. Lord, Spirit of God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I said that this, when you finally get to the, the thing that everything's been building up to, it's kind of a fizzle. And if you look at the first eight verses of chapter 2, Everything that happens here appears to be very ordinary. It starts with something as boring as a census. And no offense to census takers like Colby, it's a very important thing, right? We have to know how many people there are so that we can 
tax them so that we have enough representatives for everybody, so that we have you know, school systems that can serve. That's very, very important. But the actual process of it is very, very boring. It's not exciting. Um, so you have a census, you have bureaucracy, you have a baby being born and wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a feeding trough, and you have shepherds out in the field doing what shepherds do, which is keeping watch over their flock by night. None of this appears to be very extraordinary until you get to verse 9 and all of a sudden angels start showing up and then things kind of get, get popping there for a second. But I, I just want us to, by the Spirit of God, just say, okay, I, I don't want to allow the familiarity of this story to keep me from, from seeing the wonder of it. And so what I want to do is I want to show you the way that Luke points us to how ironic this was. And I want to try to point you toward three ironies um, that help us see the wonder in this story. So the first irony is that an earthly king carried out God's purposes. An earthly king carried out God's purposes. Verse 1 begins by saying, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. And it might be tempting to skim over the first three or four verses of chapter 2, all those details about Caesar and Quirinius. Why do we need to know who the governor of Syria was? Um, unless you're trying to win Final Jeopardy. Um, census, you know, skim over those details, right? Practically, it serves the purpose, purpose of explaining why Mary and Joseph, who lived in Nazareth, would even be in Bethlehem at all for Jesus to be born there. But other than that, what, what purpose does that serve? It seems like something you would just kind of skim over, yada, 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 and then he's born in Bethlehem, right? But their ending up in Bethlehem was not an accident of history. Hundreds of years before Caesar issued this imperial de decree that sort of led this domino falling to, to them ending up in Bethlehem, hundreds of years before Caesar issued that decree, God decreed through the prophet Micah that the Messiah would be born, not just anywhere, but in Bethlehem. So what does that tell us about the census? It tells us that Caesar is not really the one in charge, is he? God is. Caesar thinks that he is exerting his dominance and authority over his subjects. But he is actually doing God's bidding. It appears as if Joseph and Mary are doing Caesar's bidding. It looks like they are... I mean, think about how inconvenient this was. We had a census here in our country just this year. This is how convenient it was. I didn't even know we had filled it out. At one point I said to Rebecca, hey, we need to make sure we you know, fill out the census. And she said, I've already done it like last week. I filled out the paper, did it online, whatever. It was super easy. We didn't have to go anywhere. We didn't have to pay anything. We just filled out a form and sent it off and that was it. These people had to leave where they were and go to their ancestral home so that's why Joseph, who was of the house of David, goes to the city of David, Bethlehem. But all of this looks as if these people are, are having to sort of bow the knee to Caesar and do what Caesar has commanded them to do. And yet Caesar is an instrument in the hands of God 
to bring the not yet born Messiah to the very place where God had promised he would be born. So Caesar was attempting to assert his dominance over his subjects, but he himself was subject to the power and authority of God. So behind this decree of a pagan earthly king is God's good purpose. That's the first irony, that God would use an earthly king like Caesar to carry out his good purposes. The second irony is that the heavenly king was laid in a lowly manger. The heavenly king was laid in a lowly manger. Don't know why that's not working, Greg. Um, So an earthly king issues the decree that leads him to be born in Bethlehem. The second irony is that the heavenly king was was laid in a lowly manger. Here's how Luke puts it in verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now this is one of those scenes that it would be very easy to be sort of sentimental about and just think how precious this must have been. And it must have, you know, there must have been a smell of lavender in the air and a halo of light around the baby, none of that. There is absolutely nothing about this birth that looks royal, much less divine. Jesus was not wrapped in royal robes. He was not attended by servants. In fact, there was not even a midwife present to assist in the birth. The, 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 whole, the simple act of wrapping him in swaddling cloths is something that you would expect a midwife to have done in this, in this context. Instead, Luke tells us that his own mother wrapped him in the swaddling cloth. So this was incredibly lonely. And he wasn't laid in a royal bed. Mary laid him in a manger. So think about the, the contrast this holy night between Caesar and Jesus. Caesar, I'm assuming, laid his head down on his royal pillow in his royal bed with his royal servants who would come in and do anything he asked of them. And all the while, the real king, the capital K king, was laid in a dirty, stinky feeding trough. And this is the irony of how God works out his purposes, that the, the, the heavenly king is born in absolute obscurity and poverty and humility. And this signals to us what he has come to do. This was not the end of Jesus' humility. It was the beginning of it. His humility would reach its deepest point when, in the words of Philippians 2, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So his humility did not stop at Bethlehem. It began there. But here in the manger we see a glimpse of what he has come to do. He has come to humble himself. So the heavenly king is laid in a lowly manger. And the third irony is that heavenly angels invited shepherds to celebrate his birth. Heavenly angels invited lowly shepherds to celebrate his birth. It would be difficult to think of two kinds of created beings that were more different than angels and shepherds. These created beings are on opposite ends of the spectrum of of power and 
splendor. So angels, we don't need to make the mistake of thinking too highly of them. Angels are subordinate to God in every way. They are created beings. They depend on God for their existence. And yet their presence, anytime you see them appear to humans in the Bible, what happens? The humans are afraid. It, it, it invokes this response of awe and fear among humans. Shepherds, on the other hand, are on the opposite end of the spectrum. First century shepherds were about as low on the totem pole of Jewish society as you could get. They were outcasts on several different levels. So physically, shepherds were rough and unkempt. You can imagine why you wouldn't want to invite them over for dinner because they're going to stink up your whole house. Socially, shepherds were deemed to be untrustworthy. In fact, uh, historians of this time tell us that uh, shepherds, their testimonies were not even admissible in court. And so if, if you had been accused of something and your only alibi was a shepherd saw you, you're in big trouble because his testimony is not going to be worthwhile in court. And then religiously, shepherds often did not participate in temple worship. And this this last point is especially ironic when you consider that Bethlehem was just five miles from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where the temple was located. The temple is where sheep were offered as sacrifices to make God's people right with the Lord. And so any sheep outside Bethlehem would have been considered to be this, this sheep is going to possibly be, if it's you know, the right kind of sheep, this, this is the kind of animal that's going to be offered in the temple. And so you have these shepherds who are raising sheep that would almost certainly be used as sacrificial animals in the temple, but the shepherds themselves were outcasts from that worship. You, you couldn't, I mean, based on what we just said about other shepherds being deemed untrustworthy, most shepherds were not willing to just walk away from their sheep for the length of time it would take to, to go the five miles to Jerusalem and to offer sacrifices in the temple. So these, these people helped to provide the animals that were necessary for the sacrifices of the temple, but they did not partake in its benefits. Now, I'm not, you know, if you've got, you know, ancestors who are shepherds, I'm not knocking shepherds. Um, I'm not suggesting that all shepherds are horrible people. Um, these particular men may have been upstanding citizens for all we know, but Luke doesn't tell us that. All he tells us about them is their occupation, and that's enough to know that they were from a despised class. And therein lies the wonderful irony that it was these men who were invited to worship Jesus. It was the lowest of the low who were welcomed to the humble manger to witness the high king of heaven. In fact, Luke puts these kind of bookends on his uh, account of the gospel where at the beginning, the first people to witness the birth of Jesus are shepherds, and they were not considered to be trustworthy. These are not people who, if you were fabricating a story, that you would want shepherds to be the first ones to witness the birth. You would want rabbis. You would want... Um, lawyers, something like that. And then at the end of his account of the gospel, who are the first people who witnessed the resurrection? 
women. Again, I'm not knocking women. I'm just saying that women's testimony was not deemed admissible in Jewish courts during this time. And so all of this is a way of, of signaling to us that these are the kind of people for whom this Savior has come. These are the kind of people He has come to welcome. So there's a, there's a, a great lesson that we can learn from these shepherds, especially as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper this morning. Martin Luther said it this way. Uh, he said, The love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. The love of God does not find but creates that which is pleasing to it. It's not that God searches the world and finds some who are already pleasing to Him. It's that God's unearned love makes us pleasing to Him. That's why it's called grace. There was nothing about these shepherds that made them particularly deserving of this invitation to worship the newborn king. It's not that God said, okay, these people really deserve to come see Jesus. No, instead, God welcomes them by grace, unearned favor, and it's His way of signaling that He has come. This Savior has come for those whom the world deems unacceptable. He has come to welcome the outcast. Jesus is going to later say in Luke chapter 5, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. These are the kind of people that Jesus has come for. Those who are sinners, those who are outcast, those who others would say they have no business in the temple. They have no business coming into God's presence. They have no business coming to herald the newborn king. These are the ones whom God invites. And think about this in light of what Mary said in her psalm in chapter 1. I want you to hold your place here and look back at chapter 1, verse 51. This is what Mary said. She said, He, that is God, has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich He has sent away empty. Does that not sound like what's happening here in chapter 2? God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Think about the pride in Caesar's heart that he would say, I, I, want, to, I want to make everyone under my authority to have to pick up and move in a way that I'm going to show my dominance over them. I'm going to tax them and that sort of thing. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. The truth of the matter is, Caesar Augustus, this guy who had all this power and all this authority and all these servants, his bones are in a grave somewhere. And this little baby who is wrapped in swaddling cloths is alive and is right now seated at the right hand of God. And he is waiting until his enemies would be subject as a footstool to his throne. So God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and he has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. By welcoming these lowly shepherds, God is signaling to us that this is what He is doing. He is welcoming the lowly. He is welcoming those of humble estate. And He is scattering the pride 
of the powerful and the influential. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Think about how absolutely foolish it would have been uh, for these shepherds to go and to boast in the presence of the newborn king. It wouldn't have made any sense, right? We just saw some angels. I mean, if, if, if the little baby Jesus could have spoken, he might have said, great, I created them. We just saw this, this light from heaven. heaven. All right, cool. I created light. I said, let there be light. I created the heavens and the earth. Right? It would not make any sense for them to go and boast in the presence of the newborn king. And in a similar way, we are deluded if we think there's anything within us that makes us deserving of God's favor. He has chosen what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. To take the Lord's Supper is to profess that God has welcomed me into a relationship with Him, not because of anything in me, not because I am somehow deserving, but because of what He has done in Christ at Bethlehem and at Golgotha, in the manger and on the cross. So for someone who has not trusted in Jesus, to take the bread and the cup would be to proclaim a lie and would therefore be improper. So if if you've never given your life to Jesus, you can do that today. By His unearned love, you can forsake your sins and trust in Him. And parents, we have a responsibility to talk to our children about this, to ensure that they either partake or don't partake appropriately, and that we disciple them by explaining what this means. I want us to take a moment and to ask God to prepare our hearts to take the bread and the cup. So let's do that now together. Lord, we thank You for the wonderful an indescribable gift you have given to us in your Son, Jesus. We thank you that you have not left it up to us to to provide what is necessary for our salvation or to secure anything or to accomplish anything, but that you alone have done all that is necessary for us to be reconciled to you. God, that you sent your Son, Jesus, who existed eternally as God, to become flesh and to be like us in every way except without sin. And Lord Jesus, that you, although you existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be held on to, but that you humbled yourself and took on the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. You humbled yourself and became obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And for this reason, you have been highly exalted, and God has bestowed on you the name which is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So, Lord, we pray that we would, I pray that we would be humbled before you, that we would not foolishly puff up our chests before you, But Lord, that we would bow in humility before you and confess that you are Lord. Help us now as we take the bread and the cup that we would discern the body and blood of Jesus. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. So you have elements there in the pew in front of you. Don't take the cup just yet. Or don't take the bread just yet. Um, I'll tell you when. The first element we take in the Lord's Supper is the bread by which we remember and proclaim the body of Jesus. That body which was given at Calvary was first given at Bethlehem. Um, I said earlier that these shepherds were almost certainly raising sheep for sacrifice in the temple. And isn't it amazing to think that all the while the one true Lamb of God had been born nearby. They were tending their flocks out in the field and God was tending to His Lamb in the manger. I want you to grab a hymnal and turn with me to number 180. Hymn number 180. We're going to sing the first verse of the first Noel. And as we do, let's consider the body of our Lord, born at Bethlehem, crucified at Calvary. Uh, Hebrews 10 verse 5 says, Constantly when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. So let's sing the first verse of number 180. You can take the bread with me now. The body of our Savior, Jesus Christ, torn for you. Eat and remember. The second element we take in the Lord's Supper is the cup by which we remember and proclaim the blood of Jesus that was shed for us. Luke tells us here in verses 13 and 14, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. So the heart of the angelic announcement is that God receives glory and mankind receives peace. And it's not just a declaration of peace between one person and another. It's a declaration of peace between God and His fallen image bearers. And when you think about it that way, you realize that the peace these angels announced was a promise of something that Jesus would purchase at the cross. Paul connects these dots in Colossians chapter 1. He says, For him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. So the peace that was promised on the hills outside Bethlehem was purchased on a hill outside Jerusalem. The angels announced it, but Jesus secured it by the blood of His cross. 
So as we sing, the, we're going to sing the last verse of the first Noel. Uh, remember that this is what it cost for God to secure peace with us. This was the price for a holy God to set aside His holy wrath against our sin and to overcome our hostility toward Him so that we might have genuine peace with Him. So let's sing the, the fourth verse of the first Noel together. Shed for you, eat and remember, drink and remember. Amen. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation here in a moment. We're going to sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior, man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He came to reclaim ruined sinners like you and me. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are thankful for that truth that you came not for those who think they are righteous, but for those who know that they are sinners. And so, Lord, I pray that one response we would have to your word this morning is that we would know how unworthy we are to come before you on our own, Lord, that we would know that our only hope of coming into the presence of God would be to come through the veil of Jesus. And so, um, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see our sinfulness and that you would see how freely you welcome us if we will come to you in trust and in repentance. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. <laughs> 